Most of us grew up believing that Hitler was about to invade Britain in 1940 and was only prevented by the heroic defence put up by the Royal Air Force. But when we looked at the German documents from that summer, we discovered that the Nazis had no long-term intention to invade Britain at all. And even though they began to make furious preparations in July 1940, they never came up with a workable plan. But still, there's no getting away from it. There was a long and bloody battle that was going on in the sky over the Channel and southern England throughout the summer months of 1940. It brings us back to the same question. Would the Germans have found some way to get their army across if only their pilots had been able to win superiority in the air? Or was something entirely different going on? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. Now, the story that the key to invading Britain was superiority in the air, in fact, dates back to the years before the Second World War. In the 1930s, as airplanes and airships got bigger and bigger, the British imagination was gripped by the fear that the Channel was no longer the impenetrable defence it had always been. Britain was now horribly vulnerable to a new fangled airborne invasion. Peter Fleming recalls that even as Hitler's forces swept towards the Channel coast in early 1940 across France, panic spread across Britain that a German army would land in planes or come by parachute disguised as British soldiers or possibly disguised as nuns. You recall that the head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring, proposed just such an airborne assault, with or without the nuns' outfits. There were some in British intelligence who believed it would happen. Though, as we shall see in our discussions at the History Café about why Britain joined the First World War, just because British intelligence believed something doesn't prove it was even remotely true. The fact was that there was never even the slightest possibility of an airborne invasion of Britain in 1940. Historian David Clark has analysed the German forces in that year and concluded that they had fewer than 5,000 trained parachutists and aeroplane space for even fewer let alone the transport of tanks, the key to the German strategy of fast-moving motorised blitzkrieg. So, writes Clark, quotes, a parachute attack could only be the overture for the main thrust, an amphibious landing by conventional troops. So you end up back at square one. An aerial assault would barely begin to solve the problem of invading Britain. Anyway, since the war, the assumption's always been that the German Luftwaffe would not itself carry the German army over the Channel, its role would be to protect the German ships as they made the crossing. Now we should look at this proposition much more closely. Let's start by considering the scale of the problem. The German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, would certainly need protecting. Cavacaresi points out that Hitler had neglected his navy, quote, since he'd never faced up to the possibility of a fight to the finish with Great Britain. The Kriegsmarine was in fact keen for a fight with the British Royal Navy, but not yet not until 1946, once it had had time to build a massive new fleet of German warships. Historians differ over their figures, but when the war had broken out in 1939, the Germans had only had something in the order of two fast battleships, 
three pocket battleships, two rather out-of-date battleships, three heavy cruisers, five light cruisers, 17 destroyers and 57 U-boats. Gross Admiral Rader had written that, in an all-out conflict with the British Navy, his fleet would, quotes, just about be able to show that they could die with dignity, and nothing more. Since 1939, his Kriegsmarine had shrunk even further, losing three cruisers and ten of its destroyers during the invasion of Norway. Other ships were still in repair. So had a German invasion armada ever left harbour in the summer of 1940, in fact, Admiral Raider would only have had four destroyers, one heavy cruiser, two light cruisers and three torpedo boats left to escort it. Historian Jeff Hewitt makes the point that the Germans had only about a dozen U-boats at sea that summer, and anyway, they weren't much use in the shallow channel. The notion of invading Britain with this tiny fleet in 1940 filled Raider with horror. Even Hitler laughed at the Kriegsmarine, once that is, its officers were out of the room. Our little navy, he guffawed, only 15% that of the enemy. The comparison with the British Royal Navy was indeed truly sobering. The British had something like 56 destroyers just within easy reach of the Channel plus six light cruisers, one town-class cruiser, and another three up the coast in the Humber, as well as hundreds of smaller boats. That's not counting the venerable battleship Revenge, which could have steamed out of Plymouth in an emergency. It would have had to have left behind its sister, Centurion, because she was in reality an empty hulk with wooden guns set up to fool German reconnaissance. But Revenge would have swamped the German landing craft just by sailing past. Hitler's Directive Number 16 grandly orders the Kriegsmarine to um, distract Britain's Royal Navy by faint attacks in the North Sea and the Mediterranean and then keep it out of the way by laying minefields across the Channel. But even before Hitler issued his directive, Jodl, remember the second most senior officer in the Reich, was having to admit that to invade, they would in reality first have to destroy all the Royal Navy warships on the South Coast. But it was never even remotely possible. Admiral Raider simply and bluntly informed the German High Command that an invasion of Britain was impossible. Quotes, the task is out of all proportion to the Navy's strength, he wrote. And he repeated it to Hitler when he met him on the 21st of July, 1940. On the 29th of July, the Admiral's staff drew up a memo, quotes, against undertaking the operation this year. The next day, General Halder, the German Army's Chief of Staff, wrote in his diary, quotes, the Navy will not provide us with the preconditions for a successful invasion this autumn. And that would seem to be that. Air protection or no air protection, in the summer of 1940, the German Navy told anyone who would listen that they could under no circumstances ferry their army across the Channel for an invasion. Whatever was happening in the skies above the Channel and southern England, and however inventive and hard-working the German engineers might have been, there was never any prospect of the Germans invading Britain in 1940. End of story. Or is it? One of the most persistent myths in modern British history is the story that if only the Germans could have achieved air superiority in 1940, the Nazis would have invaded Britain. But we've seen that the German Navy was quite clear. An invasion was impossible, out of the question, air superiority or not they would never be a match for the much more powerful British Royal Navy. Those who still believe that a German invasion was not only intended but also viable, whatever the German admirals said, 
point to two game-changing factors. One was the possibility that after the fall of France, the Germans could have added the French Navy to their own. Mm-hmm. Actually, by the time the Battle of Britain began, this possibility had already been literally blown out of the water. On the 3rd of July 1940, the British sank the French fleet at Merz el Kabir on the Algerian coast. Now, this is a story we'll come back to later. But once again, when we look at the German documents, we can see that it made no difference at all to the possibility of an invasion. On the 30th of June, the Germans had formally agreed with the French that the French fleet would be disarmed and tied up in North Africa. Of course, later on, the Germans might have broken their word, but there's no evidence in German naval documents that the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, ever had either the intention or the manpower to seize the French ships and use them in 1940. Anyway, although British naval chiefs thought that the prospect of the Germans commandeering the French Navy would be serious, they didn't think, even so, it would tip the balance in the summer of 1940. The second game-changer, and the more important one, is the notion that the Luftwaffe could have protected the little German navy and its crude assembly of barges, dinghies, fishing boats and rafts from being destroyed by bombing the Royal Navy out of action. After all, hadn't the Germans already sunk five British destroyers during the campaigns for Norway and the evacuation of Dunkirk? Well, you put it like that and it sounds completely obvious, but when you start to load this story into your historical coffee machine, it turns out to be pretty, well, empty fact was that the Luftwaffe was no more up to the task of interdicting or preventing the Royal Navy's control of the channel than the Kriegsmarine was. Back in 1939, the Luftwaffe had set up a working party to examine the difficulties of attacking Britain. But by the summer of 1940, the Luftwaffe had still developed no strategy at all. Time was extremely short if an invasion was to be launched, but the Luftwaffe chief, Hermann Goering, was in absolutely no hurry to come up with any ideas. On the 30th of June 1940, after the French surrender, he ordered most of his men to take a rest. They spent their time sunbathing, playing cards, drinking in Paris cafes. Those who weren't on leave spent much of their time marching on victory parades. Not much else they could have done. Important infrastructure in Belgium and northern France had been disrupted, and it all had to be put right and airfields fixed or constructed before most German aircraft could even reach Britain. Anyway... Hitler had specifically ordered Britain not to be bombed, and his Directive No. 16, which rather tentatively floated the idea of invading Britain if necessary, said absolutely nothing about the Luftwaffe attacking British ships. That's probably because the Luftwaffe was very bad at attacking ships. Since its inception in 1935, the German Air Force had always been tied to the tails of the German army. Its fighters and bombers, especially the screaming Stuka dive bombers, were designed to give air support to troops and tanks advancing against land targets, not to attack quickly moving naval vessels. Two bomber wings, 26 and 30, had been specially trained to bomb ships. But so far, off Norway and Dunkirk, wings 26 and 30 had between them only scored one hit, sinking the destroyer HMS Gurkha. Oh, and they damaged two battleships, Rodney and Warspite, slightly. Neither the Luftwaffe's specialist naval bombers nor any of their other pilots had yet scored a single success against a moving ship in the open sea. All their hits had been against vessels that were tied up in harbour or moving slowly just outside. 
In the course of July 1940, the Luftwaffe began to descend on the 20 or so British merchant convoys that beat up and down the channel each day. Goering put the operation under the command of two old friends from his First World War flying days, Bruno Lurzer and Wolfram von Richthofen, who was in fact the fourth cousin of the Red Baron, the most famous of the First World War flying aces. In practice, it turned out that the German planes were able to attack about one in four of the British convoys. Nobody, of course, agrees on the exact figures, but one estimate is that by the end of the summer, the Luftwaffe had managed to sink about 70,000 tonnes of shipping. Well, that's not negligible. But it's out of four million tonnes that had passed through the channel at the time, less than 2%. Mm Most of the ships the Luftwaffe hit were little coasters carrying domestic coal for towns along the south coast. Had very little effect on the war effort. It's true that during this period the Germans also sank 14 Royal Navy warships, including four more destroyers. It's a grim tally. Sounds strategically important. Until we recall the 52 other destroyers the Royal Navy still had stationed nearby. More important... The Luftwaffe's successes against the Royal Navy had once again largely been achieved not in the open sea, but by bombing Portsmouth and Portland harbours. Not only did this offer little comfort for a potential invasion armada in mid-channel, but it was exactly what the German Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, did not want, since they needed those harbours to supply an invasion force. On this evidence, the Luftwaffe was only ever going to be able to make a small scratch in Britain's seagoing supplies, and it was never going to be able to protect invading German boats from the Royal Navy. Luftwaffe fighters, especially the ME-109, had proved very good indeed against the RAF's Spitfires and Hurricanes. But having seen how ineffective his planes were at attacking ships, von Richthofen reported to his friend Goering quite simply that protecting an invasion fleet would be beyond them. Of course, according to the traditional account, the Luftwaffe's poor performance against British shipping was wholly because the RAF was doing a heroic job of protecting it. If the RAF could only be put out of action, the Luftwaffe would have had a free hand to bomb ships and could have made an invasion possible. But even this, when you get to look at it, is unlikely. As the historian Jeff Hewitt's commented, in May 1941, the next year, the Luftwaffe would have air superiority over the German assault on Crete. Even so, the Royal Navy still, quotes, utterly destroyed the amphibious part of the attack. The island was, it's true, then taken by German paratroopers. But even capturing a relatively small island in this way proved so difficult and costly, it was the only time the Germans ever attempted it. As we've seen, there were far too few paratroopers even to think about taking Britain in this way in 1940. So the popular idea that the Germans could have invaded if only they'd had air superiority just doesn't add up. It even overlooks the basic point that both British and German commanders assumed the first crucial wave of an amphibious invasion would have its best chance of success if it crossed the channel at night and emerged from the sea soon after dawn. But as Gross Admiral Rader pointed out, If the Luftwaffe found it difficult to hit ships in daylight, it would have no chance at all at night, particularly with the German flotilla mixed up among the Royal Navy's warships. Throughout the summer, British merchant convoys went on slipping through the channel during the hours of darkness, completely unmolested. An initial German nighttime crossing to establish the all-important invasion beachheads would have taken air forces almost completely out of the equation.
The German Navy told everyone quite clearly that an invasion of Britain was impossible in the summer of 1940. The British Royal Navy was just too powerful. The German Air Force quickly admitted that it couldn't do anything either to help protect an invasion of England. It was hopeless at bombing ships. In fact, as we shall see, every senior German officer who studied the facts quickly concluded that the idea of invading Britain was impractical. Which changes all the rules about this story. Writers like McKinstry are right that throughout the summer of 1940 the Germans went on building a large invasion force. Meanwhile, German planes went on attacking British ports and airfields and eventually cities and industries. So what does all this mean, if not that an invasion was seriously in German minds? I suppose it's time to clear the table, tidy away all the old cups and plates and start again. What we're trying to do here is to understand a mindset. If the Germans weren't seriously thinking about invasion, what were they thinking about? At the History Cafe, we often talk about discourses, ideas that are in the air that affect the way people behave. If ever we needed to disentangle the discourses that informed an historical episode, it's now. OK, so let's start with the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, since we've already been talking about it. As we've seen, after the defeat of France, Hermann Goering, German Air Force chief, told his men to relax. But at the beginning of July 1940, the Luftwaffe began sending raids over Britain. For some weeks, the raids were random. The Luftwaffe referred to them as familiarisation flights. They made no plans to attack England, and they had very little information to go on. Nobody, in fact, in 1940 knew what tactics to use. German intelligence in Britain was poor, and its knowledge of the RAF worse. Luftwaffe intelligence was led by another of Goering's old friends, Beppo Schmidt. Adolf Galland, a well-connected fighter ace, commented once that he'd never seen Schmidt use anything more sophisticated than a pair of binoculars, and that his team consisted of retired policemen, civil servants, quotes, and a horde of female assistants. Nothing wrong with that. But Beppo was nothing if not confident. From June 1940, he believed that he had up-to-date information about British aircraft production from, quotes, a reliable, well-informed and faultless spy, a man named Ostro. Uh, unfortunately for Schmidt, Ostro was a double agent, and the figures he was sending for aircraft construction were at least 50% below the truth. No wonder, then, that the Luftwaffe's familiarisation flights followed no clear plan. They bombed aircraft production sites and munitions factories along the south coast and much further inland from Norwich to Newcastle. But many of their raids seemed entirely pointless. On the 31st of July, for example, German planes scattered bombs from Cornwall to Monmouth, mostly hitting fields and villages. The raids were so random, the RAF could not make any sense of them. This was also when Luftwaffe planes began to attack ships in the Channel. And this grew into the bitter aerial dogfights that we all know about and created the impression in Britain that a sustained attack had begun, an attempt to win air superiority over the Channel. Because of this, the British always reckoned that the Battle of Britain began on the 10th of July 1940. In fact, the German documents show that these attacks on the Channel weren't any part of a plan to clear the way for an invasion. They were haphazard. Perhaps you could call them extemporary. The Germans called the air war that developed over the Channel in July 1940 Kanalkampf, Channel Struggle. For want of any specific instructions, German commanders have found that bombing ships in the Channel was the best way to draw the RAF planes out to where they would be closer to the Luftwaffe's newly captured and constructed French bases. 
German planes would use less precious fuel fighting over the channel, and if they were hit and their crew bailed out, they could be rescued. They even painted red crosses on lumbering old HE-59 seaplanes and sent them out as air-sea rescue. We all know that the dogfights over the channel in July 1940 were fought with deadly intent. The Luftwaffe lost 279 aircraft and the RAF lost 142. Both sides saw some of their best and most experienced pilots die and could only replace them with young men fresh out of flying school. But what this whole grisly episode shows is that the German Air Force had not actually made any prior plan for an invasion of England and weren't coming up with any new plans now. In fact, none of this had been about invading England at all. It wasn't until after weeks of random familiarisation flights that Hermann Goering at last produced a strategy. It was August the 8th, 1940, a month after the British reckoned the Battle of Britain to have begun. And in his plan, he revealed that he had no intention of attacking the Royal Navy or of opening up the way for an amphibious assault of Britain. His plan was for something entirely different. The Luftwaffe began flying missions over the Channel and over England from early July 1940. But at first, they had no clear plan about what they were going to do. Air Force Chief Hermann Goering had been a First World War flying ace. By 1940, he had become Der Dicker, the fat man to his friends, if not to his men. As his British biographer Richard Overy points out, there are far fewer records for Goering's war than for other German commanders. There's no diary, very little correspondence. We have to piece an account together from the scraps we know. First thing about Goering we need to remember is that unlike the chiefs of army and navy, who were lifelong soldiers and sailors, he was a politician. He'd been a member of the Nazi party almost since the beginning, in the days when he'd been making his living as a travelling salesman and a part-time stunt pilot. He'd been shot in the groin in the Nazis' hopeless attempt to seize power in 1923 and was still taking morphine in 1940 for the pain. Unlike the professional soldiers and admirals in charge of the army and navy, Goering signed up to Hitler's vision of Germany, and particularly of Lebensraum, the belief that Germany's destiny was to invade the Soviet Union and build an Eastern European empire. Overy tells us that Goering was deeply suspicious of politicians who'd only joined Hitler after he'd come to power in 1933. In particular, Goering mistrusted the foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop who'd scored successive triumphs by talking Mussolini into alliance with Germany and Stalin into signing a non-aggression pact in 1939. These diplomatic successes had brought Hitler time to invade France and the other countries to his west, ensuring that they couldn't interfere with his all-important plan to invade the Soviet Union in 1941. By the summer of 1940, much to Goering's disgust, Ribbentrop's reputation was riding high. That summer, Ribbentrop was trying to persuade Hitler to invade Britain. Now, Ribbentrop's reasons are too complex for us here, but in an eccentric footnote, Ribbentrop had been the German ambassador to London in the 1930s, and he got to know an American divorcee called Wallace Simpson. There are even later on rumours that Ribbentrop and Simpson had had an affair. They probably hadn't. She was having an affair with the Prince of Wales, and in fact, she'd introduced Ribbentrop to him. Now, this was the Prince of Wales, who in 1936 would abdicate the British throne in order to marry her. It's a fantastic and complicated story, and we'll discuss it another time at the History Café. 
1940, the ex-king and Wallace Simpson, now infamous and known as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, were in Portugal. They had notoriously visited Nazi Germany in 1937 and were widely thought to be sympathetic to Hitler. Ribbentrop, aha, had therefore hatched a plan codenamed Operation Nuvili. In July 1940, he summoned Walter Schellenberg, the SS intelligence chief, and ordered him to travel in person to Lisbon to offer the Duke 50 million Swiss francs to abscond to a neutral country and make himself available if the Nazis needed him. And if the Duke hesitated, Schellenberg had orders to kidnap him. A successful invasion of Britain would, of course, offer the possibility of restoring him to the British throne as a puppet ruler. Aha! Schellenberg managed to get a message through to the Duke, but British intelligence were on to him, and the Duke and Duchess were hastily put on a boat to the Bahamas. The best the German spy could report was a message they left behind for him. The Duke had responded, quotes, quite kindly to the message of German interests, and offered, quotes, to be in touch at some later date. But back to the serious business, the invasion of England. Ribbentrop's plans for the invasion in the summer of 1940, with or without the Duke of Windsor's help, were nonsense to Goering. He was suspicious of Ribbentrop's growing influence with Hitler. He also wanted the Fuhrer to get on with the invasion of the Soviet Union and not to waste time with an impossibly costly, difficult and distracting amphibious assault across the Channel. In fact, in 1939, Goering had even tried secretly to negotiate peace with England to get them out of the war. And he tried again, just months before the Battle of Britain began, in June 1940. But the British weren't interested. At the beginning of July, Goering was therefore posing for publicity photographs with the other top German brass, looking greedily across the channel. What he wasn't telling the others, however was that he would have nothing to do with Sea Lion, the invasion plan that his rival Ribbentrop was pushing with Hitler. We know, in fact, from several German sources that Goering's Luftwaffe barely attended any meetings about the operation. The army chief of staff, General Holder, noted in his diary at the end of July, three weeks after the British always reckoned the Battle of Britain to have begun, quotes, Air Force is not doing anything about invasion matters at present. So when Goering did finally come up with a plan for the Luftwaffe on the 8th of August 1940, it had nothing whatever to do with any invasion. As the German historian Peter Schenk writes, quotes, the Luftwaffe offered Hitler an air offensive against Britain instead. Instead of an invasion. Instead of an invasion. In fact, it's quite simple. What Goering needed to do in the summer of 1940 was to prevent von Ribbentrop's invasion of Britain. And the way he proposed to do that was by launching a massive strategic air attack that would, on its own, defeat the British by forcing them to surrender. Well, that would leave the German forces free to concentrate on the Nazi dream of conquering an empire in Eastern Europe. So the German pilots the RAF were fighting in the Battle of Britain were not trying to clear the skies for an invasion. They were trying to prevent one ever being launched. By inflicting such damage, the British surrendered. This makes much more sense of Goering's tactics in July 1940. The initial scattered bombing of merchant ships, channel ports and Britain's shipyards in Swansea, Hull and elsewhere both familiarised his pilots with British conditions and the RAF. But the second thing is, it would also hit Britain's supplies. There was a chance that it might in itself have brought the British to their knees to negotiate, although in the event it fell a very long way short. 
So when Goering finally announced his strategy on the 8th of August 1940, it was a shift away from more bombing of ships and ports. Instead, his planes would concentrate on RAF airfields, organisation and aircraft production. In a short time, he told his men, you will annihilate the British Air Force, Heil Hitler. And he named it Older Angriff, Eagle Attack. Goering was taking a calculated gamble. Having eliminated the RAF, he proposed he would be able to bomb the British at liberty and within days or weeks they would come to terms. There would be no need for Ribbentrop's wretched invasion. The majestic strength of the Royal Navy would be neutralised without having to sink a single ship. So why do the British cling tenaciously to the belief that the Battle of Britain 1940 was a desperate aerial struggle to prevent the Germans being able to launch an invasion across the Channel? Well, the answer lies in what was going on in Britain that summer, and particularly in the eccentric, unpredictable mind of the new British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.